You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I am your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst from MLB.com. Joined here by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. It is a day off in the World Series. It's the day off between games two and three. And the first two games, I think, have been pretty fun. The Dodgers took the first one, and then the Dodgers came back, excuse me, the Rays came back and won six to four. So we are now tied at a game apiece, and there has been a lot happening, I think, in the first two games. Um, I think game one we'll always remember as maybe the Mookie Betts show, but maybe also the Clayton Kershaw show. That was a pretty convincing win by the Dodgers. And in game two, uh, Brandon Lau came back with a couple homers. The Dodgers bullpenning strategy didn't maybe work so well. So Matt, there's just there's a ton to get into. Here's the first thing that I'm I'm thinking about. The Dodgers uh, in game two last night, they went with, they don't really have like four starters right now because Walker Buehler would have been on short rest. So they went with Tony Gonsolin, didn't really work that well. You know, he won an inning in the third, uh, gave up a home run, and then they yanked him, and they kind of went with a whole bunch of other guys. Floro, Victor Gonzalez, Dustin May, Joe Kelly, Alex Wood, and they remembered Jake McGee existed somehow. Uh, ended up giving up six runs, and I think people are upset by this, but I'm wondering what your thought is, because even if you didn't use Gonsolin as an opener, even if you used him as a regular starter, or even if you used Dustin May as a regular starter, both those guys are going to into this game no matter what, right? And the fact of the matter is neither one of them was that good. And I'm not sure that I'm worried so much about the roles or what order they pitch so much as I am. They aren't really getting the job done. I think that's probably a good a good way of looking at it. I do think that they've sort of, Dustin May in particular, this, um, this postseason, I kind of feel like they've given him a level of, at least certainly the last couple of games, maybe given him a level of, of trust that um, he doesn't necessarily deserve at this point. This is not to say that he's not a really talented young pitcher and likely is going to has a very bright future. But to this point in his career, he hasn't actually been that effective. Even this year, if you look at his his ERA versus like his expected stats, which sort of might give a better indication of his talent, he had like a 2.8 ERA, but an expected ERA of 4.3. Um, because the thing about May, even though he throws 100, and there's a couple Dodgers pitchers that it applies to, he doesn't really miss bats. He was in the seventh percentile in whiff percentage this year. And usually with these like young, like exciting fireball type pitchers, the issue is like, oh, well, they can't give us length, but when we put them in, they're going to be dominant because like people can't hit them because they've got nasty stuff. And while he has nasty stuff, it hasn't really manifested itself in missing bats. So, but yet he, they had him, you know, um, open game seven against the Braves. And then they had him come in as like the first man in in uh, game two against the Rays, like you know, a, and two days later and or three days later, and he got hit hit pretty hard, and that sort of might have been the difference in the game. So to me, it's, 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 to your point, I agree with you. They, they don't really know. They're to me, it's more about an issue of who they trust and who they're going to use because that seems like it might be out of out of out of might be out of whack a little bit. They clearly don't have enough starting pitchers, quote unquote, to go through a series in a traditional way. But like it's more about the roles they're assigning to the pitchers that they have that I think is open to question. Yeah, it is funny to think about the fact that they they don't really have enough starting pitchers at the moment because they have shed so many starting pitchers. Remember last year they had Rich Hill 
and they had Hunjin Ryu and they had Kenta Maeda and they had Ross Stripling and they thought they traded for David Price who chose not to play this season. And all of a sudden, like they, they'd shed all these pitchers and you think to yourself, well, okay, that's, that's a bummer for most teams, except that they're the Dodgers. So now you can have Dustin May and you can have Julio Urias and you can have Tony Gonsolin and they're just going to pull these guys out of nowhere and they'll be fine. And you know, that worked for the regular season for the most part. And it still could work now. I mean, I think Urias has actually been like really, really good. You know, I almost just wish they would let him go and let him start and have like a regular human start and maybe they will. But it's been interesting because trying to mix and match these guys hasn't worked out that well. Um, But I think you're right. Like people are kind of stunned. They see Dustin May throwing 100 miles an hour and they see the gifts of the two seamer going up and in on on Brady hitters. And they see Bruce Dargratterall who also throws 100 miles an hour. And they're like, oh, these guys are just like these fire-breathing, flame-throwing beasts. And neither one of them misses bats. And it's not that hard to understand why. They're they're not throwing, you know, four-seamers. They're throwing two-seamers. So they're trying to generate some weak contact. And they're both uh, young guys. I imagine that they will probably get some changes to their pitch mix as the years go on to try to miss more bats. But that's not really, it's not really the case right now. And, you know, I don't want to say that they are not winning because they're not striking more guys out, certainly. But the, the Rays are a high strikeout, a high strikeout team, you know. So I don't know. I, I don't really have I'm trying to figure out the right way to word this. I don't like pretty much anything Dave Roberts does with his bullpen. And yet I don't think he is responsible for, you know, not winning game two with those choices. Does that sound right in any way? Yeah, I mean, I mean, as an example of Bang game two, he threw 10 sinkers. Um, the average exit velocity was 104 miles per hour on the four batted balls. Um, he got one swing strike. And uh, in this this year, there was an expected batting average of 327 off of his sinker this year. So it's like it's not a pitch that's really fooling pitchers at the um, the major league level. Going back to Urias and the rotation, I mean, I think that's kind of what they're going to do. It looks like Urias is lined up to be to pitch Game Four, and I think he'll, he'll probably. My guess is he'll probably treat it as a traditional traditional a traditional starter, which is I think is the right move at this point. I mean, <clears throat> it's crazy. The Dodgers have 15 pitchers on the roster and that sort of speaks to almost I almost feel like that that's kind of speaks to the fact they don't really trust a lot of these guys and it almost seems like they just kind of want to they're hoping that they kind of find a hot hand or they just like keep throwing stuff against the wall and someone kind of emerges and you know Dylan Floro pitched well in game two I would not be surprised if suddenly he gets um uh a high leverage spot in in game three or four what kind of vexed me about the the usage in um, games one and two was in game one, they had, you know, Joe Kelly come out and close out the game, but it was a five run deficit. So while I wouldn't say it was like low leverage, he was still closing out the game, but it was like, it was a five run lead. Sorry, not deficit. Five run, it was a five run lead. So it, it wasn't exactly like a tense situation. And then he comes on, they, then, they, then in game two, they bring him back the next day on no rest with all these other pitchers available. And in not a high leverage situation, but they were down five, nothing. They had just made it five to two. And they bring in Joe Kelly, and he instantly gives up a run. It was sort of like, what? How is Joe Kelly suddenly this like? Oh, we got to get Joe Kelly in the game, guy. You know, it just it felt, it felt so, so strange to me. And this is where the big this is where the big advantage of the Rays is, right? Like they in game two, it's like they know, okay, we're going to try and get whatever we can from from Blake Snell, and then we were going to Nick Anderson. I mean, it was like, I mean, Nick Anderson has had his struggles and he, he gave up a, was it a home run again yesterday to, to Will Smith. So he's, he's not been like the, the Nick Anderson we've talked about a lot on this podcast, but it's still like they have a lineup they want to go to. I love that move of bringing in Nick Anderson in like the fifth inning. They've done it a few times now in the postseason where they brought him in as kind of the classic 1970s 
fireman role, you would think that like, you know, John Smoltz in the booth would be going like Gago for this. This is like classic. <laughs> you like would old, think. <laughs> like classic old school reliever reliever usage here, right? Like, oh, we're just, you know, we need this guy in the fifth inning. We're going to him. And that's, I mean, that's the difference in the game. That's why in the, between the teams is like the, the Rays have like four or five, they have like four or five relievers they can't wait to get in the game. <laughs> Whereas the, the Dodgers have, basically they want to avoid their bullpen as much as they can. And I actually think that's why the, 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 the days off are really actually give the, really help, really benefit the Rays because it allows them to reset their bullpen. Whereas like the Dodgers, it's almost like, a lot of these guys are kind of interchangeable and they don't really care that much about who they use that I feel like the Dodgers would have a huge edge if this were being played like the LCS was played a seven game series with no days off. Yeah. It's funny to think about Joe Kelly because he came in in the second game of the NLDS when Kelly Jansen kind of everybody had lost all confidence in him and he got the, he got the save, right. But right after walking Fernando Tatis and Manny Machado to load the bases, it was, it was the scariest save I think any Dodger fan has ever seen. And then he pitched, I guess this is kind of fun. Like if you just look at the box score in the fifth game of the NLCS, he pitched a scoreless inning. Great. Good for him, right? But if you actually go and look at what happened, I think that was the ugliest scoreless inning I've ever seen. So in that inning, he comes in and he, let's see, he allows a single to Marcelo Zuna, but like a crushed liner to deep center. He allows a single to Travis Darno, but also kind of a crushed liner to deep center. He gets a ground out and then he was pitching when Moki Betts made that really nice play in right field and Marcelo Zuna left the base early. So did he get a scoreless inning? Yes. Did he do much <laughs> of anything to deserve that? Uh, no, not so much. And then he came in in game two last night of the World Series, um, immediately allowed two singles, then a sacrifice fly, scoring another run, which ended up being kind of a big run. Um, it's it's hard to imagine him in a big spot. You know, I know everybody kind of wants him to be Joe Kelly of, of two years ago against the Dodgers, but I, I have a really hard time seeing him being trusted with anything. And that's kind of the thing. If you go up and down the list of of Dodger like pitchers, I guess, not Bueller, not Kershaw, because they're starters. Um, and even, you know, Urias is going to be a starter. After that, it's like, is Kenley Jansen once again the most trusted Dodger reliever? I sort of hate saying that because he struggled so bad a couple weeks ago. And then he was good for the last couple of games in the NLCS. And we haven't seen him in a week. And I feel like, I feel like there's enough shine off of him that he should not be, you know, considered still this ace reliever. And then I'm looking down at the, the rest of the list. Like, do you trust Gratterall more? Who doesn't miss bats? Same for May. Um, is Dave Roberts going to trust Trinan, who's been, you know, fine? Pedro Baez, who's been around forever. Um, you know, he doesn't really seem to remember. He's actually got a couple lefties in Jake McGee and Adam Kolarik. So I think the answer to that is yes. But man, I feel really uncomfortable about that because, you know, Jansen has not been capital KJ Jansen for for years right and I, I think as you kind of said that's a that's a big disadvantage because if we we're listing all of the pitchers the non-starting pitchers on both teams how many rays do you pick before you get to uh a, a Dodger aside from Urias it's a couple right I think I mean I I, for, I, I would take I certainly would take um Anderson and Castillo um, those would be my. I, I'm. I'm. I may be the the, the world's foremost uh, Diego Castillo fan. I take him above above Fairbanks. I'm trying to think of anyone else. Is there anyone else who? But what about yourself? Um, yeah, I mean it's pretty close, right? Like, and even Anderson hasn't looked like Anderson, obviously, as you said, you know. And I'm not sure what they can do about that. Even last night, you know, he, he got the job done, I guess, but. He got the job. He came in with with men on, and he struck out Justin Turner, which is like no small feat. That was actually a really a really big out because there was two men on, and 
they had just scored a couple runs and there was that was like a moment and Justin Turner's obviously a tough out. So like um that was that was a big out, but then he obviously gave up a run the next the next the next inning. Um Yeah, his deal has been so if if you've watched him over the last year or two, like I have He's got this really in- impressive four-seam fastball, and it's not even like 105 miles an hour. I think even Smoltz mentioned this last night that he's one of the, the lower velocity really razor relievers, and that's that's right, which is actually kind of funny to think about. Like that guy is somehow a soft tosser now. And uh, you know, he'd had a little bit of rise to it, but most importantly, he could pinpoint it like right at the top of the zone. I looked this up the other day, and this year in the regular season, he had the highest percentage of his four-seam fastballs being thrown, you know right around the top edge of the strike zone, which is which is impressive, right? Because he's still getting strikes on it and he's called strikes and he's getting swinging strikes. And then you pair that with this breaking ball that's kind of a curveball, kind of a slider. You know, he calls it a curve that comes out at the same spot and then just like dies into the dirt and he's unhittable. And then if you look at his fastball since know, like 10 days ago or so, it's it's not in that spot anymore. It's sort of all over. Even last night, you could see it like low in the zone. I'm not sure if this is a strategy or if this is fatigue or whatever it is, but he, he does not look like the same guy. I mean, like you said, another home run last night. So now if you're Kevin Cash, like how much confidence do you have in him going forward? It's it's certainly compromised, but I think that they he's, they still he's still been good enough that I still think that like he's still you know part of the plan. It's like okay, he's he's my 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 quote unquote fireman. I was actually looking into Anderson because you know as we've talked a lot about on this on this podcast like. A lot of the the, the pitchers who succeed with four seam fastballs up in the zone, it's because their um, four seam fastballs have a lot of high, high spin. So it's like a, it gives a rising fastball effect. That's the classic, like Justin Verlander, you know, four seam fastball, twenty five hundred RPMs up in the zone, kind of like that the, the rise ball, so to speak. Um, but Anderson, even though he succeeds with his fastball up in the zone, it's not a high spin fastball. Um, it's like 2200 RPM, which is kind of, you know, middle of the road. So he's not getting that quite the same rise ball effect. It seems to me that like his success and, you know, I know I'm speaking to like the world's like foremost Nick Anderson expert. Um, <laughs> it seems to be more about like, you know, the, the, the tunneling or basically like his fastball and his curveball look identical. And then one stays on a flat plane up in the zone and the curveball just like dives. It's really about, it's really, for him, it seems like it's usually about changing eye levels. Whereas when, it, if his fastball's you can't keep up in the zone it's lower in the zone well then hitters don't have to worry about their eyes eye level changing yeah i think that's right but it's also about the fact that a lot of guys who try to pitch like that are a little less precise with the fastball you know so they don't get called strikes necessarily like he does like if you lay off the fastball maybe you'll be okay and in his case um you just put yourself down one so i'm i'm i like the idea of the the old school fireman like you said i'm not sure how much i trust him necessarily going forward I do want to make sure we don't overlook how great Clayton Kershaw was, because I feel like given the hashtag narrative around Clayton Kershaw in the postseason, it's important to point out that this all time great had like an all time great start in game one. Um, You know, six innings, I guess maybe that's not all time great, but one one run, two hits, eight strikeouts. And he was really good. And I felt like people were almost taking some credit away because they're saying, well, the Rays offense isn't that good. And um, not to steal your thunder here, but that's not entirely true. They were ninth in weighted runs created plus this year, uh, and they were fourth against lefties, right? Like, I know they haven't been hitting well, but they they certainly can hit. And I thought what Kershaw did was really interesting. He, you know, he throws three pitches, and he's always, like, super predictable, right? Fastball, curveball, and slider. And what I found interesting was he threw a couple of sliders that 
were were like intentionally slower i think it almost looked like he was trying to create a fourth pitch like usually a slider is you know 87 ish uh and he threw a couple that were like 82 83 and i thought that was interesting i I have to imagine that was intentional on his part um you know just to give a a different look which i thought that was kind of cool it's it's not necessarily like what made the game for him but if you watch this all-time great pitcher closely and it's kind of fun to see him still making these changes um, late in the game. Do you think at all, Matt, this is going to change the narrative or does it does it require the Dodgers winning entirely, no matter what else he does? I think it re- re- requires the Dodgers winning and I think it requires him pitching well again in, in game five. Um, but I think that like that, that start definitely made a difference in people's minds a little bit just because of like all the talk about the narrative coming in, especially since how, you know, underwhelming he was in the NLCS and it brought all that talk um, back back up you know matt kelly one of our colleagues at mlb.com did a really uh like a, a a good breakdown of just like okay here's everything you need to know about clayton kershaw's post you know postseason history kind of like a, here are the facts you know you decide you know i'm going to break this down and sort of give you the good and the bad and you can kind of decide you know the reader can decide what you what you think this is like a you know for for old for um old school for lack of a better word like um uh sabermetric heads on the internet um this is like the classic uh, like rob nyer in the early days of espn where there'd be like a narrative it'd be like oh you say Derek jeter's a clutch hitter eh? well let me show you these statistics and compare him to other great hitters and you tell me if you think he's actually clutch and it's like a formula i think still works when sometimes the narrative gets so out of control that like you kind of want to just like check people a little bit and the, the most interesting thing that i thought that matt did was he took every pitcher in the in the um division era with um uh at least 15 postseason starts and i think there were 25 of them he also included Bumgarner and pedro who had 14 because like they're such big names and it was like okay let's include them and he, he put their their starts into bucket their postseason starts into buckets by game score um so basically put anything of 60 game score of 50 is average is considered average and like 100 is considered great right so he basically had three categories clunker which was a 39 game score and below average which is 40 to 65 and a gem which is 66 and above and when you compare Kershaw to um, uh, the other sort of like legendary pitchers of October, he actually compares fairly favorably, especially when you talk about quote unquote gems, you know, 38% of his starts are, were, were gems, which is more than John Lester, which is more than Justin Verlander, which is way more than Andy Pettit, who had a great reputation as being this great postseason starter. The issue for Kershaw is that he has probably more clunkers than a lot of his peers. And that like is what I think has stood out and sort of like probably what it sticks in people's minds. Like for example, and this is, I think is pr- pretty interesting, which I had not realized that John Lester had zero, zero starts that you would consider like really bad in the postseason. He's had a lot of them. I think that's, you know, sort of speaks to his good postseason reputation. Um, Justin Verlander, only 10% of his starts have fallen into that category. Um, but even Kurt Schilling, 16% of his starts fell into that category. So it's like, I think when you look at it that way, it's like, okay, you know what? Kershaw has actually had a lot of great performances like he did in game one, like he did in game one of the 2017 World Series, like he did in, I know, remember it was, um, he, I think Mike, you and I, I think went to that game, game four of the, the 2015 NLDS against the Mets at City Field where he pitched on short rest and he shut down the Mets um, to send it back to to LA. So he's had a bunch of gems. It's just like the the clunkers he had against St. Louis a few years ago. I think there's two that stand out that kind of like really what is like driven a huge part of the, the, the narrative, not to mention like maybe him being left in a little bit too long. Well, he's always oh, left in a little bit too long. Even but, not in, but not this week, not yet. Not, not in game one. No, not in, not in game one. Although it helped that they, um, I think, I think he was going to come back out and then the Dodgers put up like f- what 
three more runs or whatever in the bottom of that inning and it made the decision um easy that's that's the secret really like score a bunch of runs and don't have to worry about pushing him deep in a, in a tight game i think this is all interesting i think i hadn't realized until i saw this chart that matt had done matt kelly that john lester had never really had a bad postseason start because i've always looked at him as a guy who a good obviously very good pitcher but not i've never thought of him as like a top level ace like i think i have thought about kershaw or i have thought about you know verlander or whatever but if he's never out there having these bad moments, I think that's what people think about. Cause it sort of reminds me almost of the whole argument over Derek Jeter playing defense, right? Cause like he'd make these nice looking plays and his range was so limited. He'd never, he'd never get to balls. He couldn't make and He'd never make any mistakes and you'd never have any video of him screwing up. Right. And I think that's when people remember. It's like, Oh, I never remember him being bad. So <laughs> he must always be good. I, I always kind of thought about that with him. Um, I also got a kick out of, during game one, probably early in game one, Fox ran a a leaderboard of like the highest postseason ERAs. I don't remember what the minimum was, but it was pretty high. And Verlander was actually worse than Kershaw. That was before Kershaw's good start. So maybe we should start talking about Verlander also being a, a World Series <laughs> bum. Too. I mean, I hate this narrative. It's not going to go away. I think it's also because he's always been compared to another left-hander from the West Coast in Madison Bumgarner, who is maybe the best all-time postseason pitcher which that's kind of kind of an unfair thing to be to be compared to. Um, but I don't know. I hope that if and when in his next start, he gets pushed too far and inevitably, I don't know, Pedro Baez or somebody comes out and, and allows all the inherited runners to stay. And we remember how good he was in game one, because that was that was a lot of fun to watch, even on yeah, both I'm, sides. Like like even, you know, the Dodgers, the way they approached Glasnow, super patient. They had, I think, the lowest chase rate in baseball this year or something close to it. And um while Glasnow is obviously insanely talented, you know, you can make him work. And they, they did that. I, I thought that was a, a good approach. And then they didn't really seem to be able to replicate it in game two. I think last week when we drafted teams with with Will Leach, one of us drafted Snell it was probably me. And I said, I really like him. He's a good pitcher, but I don't really have a lot of fun watching him. And I really felt that way again in game two. Did you not? Yeah, no. It's he, he, it was, and The thing is, I, I've always kind of felt that way about Snell. Um, but I think that he... Um, it was kind of his best version of, of of himself in game two, at least for you know a couple like innings like two 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 and two and three. Um, you know, I saw a tweet from 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 uh, Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal that um, J- Blake Stell still hasn't gone full six innings in a game since July twenty first, two thousand nineteen, and it looked like he was going to get there in 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 game two because he was cr- like cruising. But it was a good reminder that every pitcher is cruising until he's not. Um, but he, he's a bit of a tough watch. He seems to kind of always be laboring. But he had both breaking balls working um, um, in in game two for for much of his outing and looked was really getting a lot of swings and misses. I mean, he's he's actually you know um, he's actually not that in some ways the repertoire and the kind of his like his kind of like the his delivery is not that different from Kershaw's um, in terms of like he's got the two breaking balls. Um, he just obviously doesn't have the command that Kershaw did, although he did have that one Cy Young season where he was was uh, maybe close to that close to that level. But um, they're not that dissimilar to to me. All right, let's take a quick break there and look ahead to the rest of the series, starting with Game Three on Friday. You're listening to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like "I lost my mojo." Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. 
with a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication. It's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Let's spin forward and look ahead to the next the next three three games um, because we have the um, Walker Bueller who's been nailed for the Dodgers all postseason, and then Charlie Morton who has become one of the better you know playoff pitchers in recent memory. He now has he's he's had like I think he, you know he's won four game sevens. Uh, or no, oh, sorry, won, won four do or do uh, winner go home games, including a wild card game in his career. Uh, and no other pitchers ever won more than two, which is kind of wild. <laughs> um, and so, and then that, then after that, you've got uh, Urias. I don't even know who's going to start game four for the um, the Rays yet. Um, have they even announced it? I have not seen it. Um, I mean, Yarbrough, maybe he's he's usually like their fourth starter. Um, I'm just and then, uh, and then presume, uh, then it'll be Urias, presumably, I think, for the Dodgers and Kershaw in Game Five for probably Kershaw Glasnow um, brought back in Game yeah. Five for both teams. So in Game Three, Bueller versus Morton, what are kind of you you looking to? What are you interested to? to what are you looking for? What do you what do you think some of like the key the key matchups and and, and storylines will be? I mean, I mean, just thinking ahead, real quick, these games are, are incredibly important for the Dodgers because then in Game Six you probably have to go with May and Gonsolin again. And you don't want to do that if you've already lost three games, do you? <laughs> because that has not worked out as well for them. I I tend to push back on this like Charlie Morton narrative that he's, you know, oh, he's this great big game pitcher. Because he is. Like, I don't disagree with that at all. But he's just a good pitcher, right? Like, why do we have to say he's he's different in the postseason? I'm not sure that he is. He's he's just generally a very good pitcher. Um, everybody on earth, you know, knows the Charlie Morton story by now, going from Pittsburgh and Houston and Tampa and throwing harder and really for the last what four years or so i mean he finished third in the Young last year right so for the last four years or so he has been one of the better pitchers in baseball i'm i'm fascinated by this matchup because as you said bueller has been really good lately and i'm not sure that either team has a has a necessary starting pitching advantage right like there are there are a lot of things to like about both teams i think it's fair to say that the rays offense is better than people give it credit for but it's still not as good as the Dodgers, you know, like did Brandon Lau have a rebirth last night with two home runs or was that, you know, just a nice blip in the midst of what's been a really, really bad month. Um, is Randy Rosarina like having his predictable coming back to earth at some point? I, I feel like one thing I got a, a big kick out of last night was he faced Jake McGee, who has thrown something like 92% fastballs, right? Like literally that's all he does. And against the Rosarina, he threw a couple of sliders. So if that doesn't tell you a little bit about the scouting report against him, uh, I'm not sure what does. So there's that. And then, you know, there's also the fact that I don't know. I, I don't have a good feeling as to which starting pitcher I, I prefer because they are both 
top quality pitchers. They've both pitched well in the playoffs. So I'm kind of coming back to the fact that the Dodgers offense is better. And you know what else I found interesting? We have not talked at all, or, you know, through the first two games of this World Series about the Rays defense, really. Like, yes, I know Joey Wendell um, got a line drive right to him yesterday that he caught. But for all the talk about this during the ALCS, and I know it's only been two games, it hasn't really come up that much in terms of, oh, they're positioned perfectly. They're everywhere. And I'm I'm sort of like retroactively thinking now that was just like a hot streak, a defensive hot streak where the, you know, they're positioned well, but the Astros had everything right at them. And we're going to need more than two games, I think, to, to spell that out. But that's kind of fun because that was such a, a topic of discussion. Is that is that aligned with what you've seen? Uh, yes, actually, I, I mean, it's, I mean, I think part of it also, it's in a weird way. It's also like the, that the Astros put the ball in play so much, they gave them more opportunities and they were like, <laughs> it worked out, <laughs> it worked out very well. There was Too actually no, contact. <laughs> there was a no, notable playing game too, that really stood out to me. Whereas that was, um, I forgot which inning was where Justin Turner hit a blooper to center that where Manny Margot and Kiermaier almost like collided on and it turned into a double. It was right after, um, Will Smith homered. It looked like the Dodgers were maybe going to get a rally going again. Um, and it was actually, if you go by StatCast's catch probability, um, it was a 55% catch probability for Kiermaier. And, um, that's, you know, this year on, on, that's what's considered a three-star catch, um, by StatCast, anything in the like 50 to 70, 51 to 75 percentile, uh, difficulty range. Um, so like a challenging catch, but not like, you know, ridiculous. This year, Kiermaier was five for five on three-star opportunities. Um, and he didn't make the play. And it was actually like, it, it ended up not getting any discussion, um, but it was actually like, it ran very much counter to, and I, you, I probably blame Margot for it, to be honest with you, because like, I think that Margot kind of got into Kiermaier's sight line and probably should have, it was definitely Kiermaier's ball and Margot probably should have peeled off or gone and backed up and for, on the chance that Kiermaier missed it, he would have held Turner to a single, but it definitely ran counter to the narrative of the Rays as they don't make mistakes. Because it was, by Kiermaier's standards, it was, it was kind of a... a a glaring, a glaring mistake, but would not show up in any, in any box score. As far as the Bueller Morton um, uh, matchup, I probably give the Dodgers a slight edge. The thing about the, the Rays with Morton, and this is kind of just the way they're built, is with Morton, they 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 basically he goes into every game being like, I know they basically only want me to go two, maybe two and a half times to the lineup, right? He's like, not there's no expectation. It's like we want you to go five innings. You know, he had, didn't pitch more than five and two thirds all year, even though he was pretty good. And even in games, uh, was it game seven against the, uh, it was game seven against the Astros, he pitched five innings and they took him out after like, you know, 70 pitches, five, like five clean innings and like 70, 70 something pitches. And it was just like, this is how we do it. Right. And that's, that's kind of what you look for again is like, you just say like, can he get through five innings without giving up more than, you know, two runs basically. That's, that's to me, that's sort of like the benchmark. If, if he can get five innings and give up two runs or less, like that has a successful start. And then. They can go to their bullpen, and I actually think it's really important for the Rays because you, you, they've got the three straight games, so they're actually going to have to be a little more strategic with their bullpen because they can't assume that like, oh, our our best guys can pitch in three straight days, and in Game Four they are probably going to need a lot more of their bullpen. So it's like they actually do need to get the good Morton to at least they're only getting four. They're asking their bullpen to get four innings as opposed to asking them to get you know six innings. You know that's that could make, end up being a huge difference in the series. Do you like it better that we have days off here? Um, just speaking as a human being, I'd be happy to go to bed at like eight o'clock tonight. But in terms of pitching strategy, this is this is different now because we had no days off in the NLCS or or the, either of the you know division series, and that really changes things a lot. I mean, I think you know if I if I was the czar of scheduling, I think I would like at least one day off. 
you know, because you don't actually need, you know, given the unique circumstances this year, you don't need to travel, but maybe being like, hey, we're going to play three games and take a day off and then play, you know, four through seven. That might actually more replicate more regular season baseball anyway, because that's more like the rhythms that you get. Like, oh, you play three game series, day off, four game series, that kind of thing. Like to me, I think that might be, that would be like my sort of like ideal scenario. I kind of like the day off because I think I like being, like seeing teams be able to put their their best foot forward. Um, and I think that like these, the, the series that were, that were um, no, no days off, it became kind of a slog towards the end of the series because now you get, you know, you're lined up like, okay, cool. Now we actually get to, you know, we're probably going to see Kershaw come back in game five on, on full rest. And that's, I think that's, that, I think that's great. I think that's exciting. Like I, I mean, I already had my calendar circled for Sunday. I was like, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be great. We've got Kershaw coming back. We know there's going to be a game five. He's going to be on full rest. This is going to be kind of like a cool moment that like the baseball world is bearing down on. It could be, it could be a, you know, a clincher. It could be to avoid, you know, the Rays one, you know, it's like either way, it's going to be like a high stakes game with Kershaw on full rest. And that's cool. So um, I, uh, for that reason, I'm, 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 I'm glad that there is the, um, the, there, there are the off days. How about you? Yeah, I think also just real quick, that was also a big part of the Kershaw issues from years past is they kept asking to come back on three days rest. And I think they've decided we're never, ever doing that again. I think I kind of like it the way we've done it. I liked having no days off in the earlier series because it did feel a little more like regular season baseball. But I do like it in the World Series having a day off, at least one, because you do kind of want your better pitchers to be available for the biggest spots. You know, I don't think any Dodger fan wants the series to be turned on what you know, Adam Kolarik does because he's forced in because he's the only one who's rested. You know what I mean? One thing I am I am already expecting will happen in game three is a lot of the the top Dodger relievers haven't pitched in a while, right? So Jansen hasn't pitched since the 17th. So that's almost a week ago. And uh, Gratterall will have had four days off and Trinan will have had four days off. And so I'm just, I'm already prepared for the fact that no matter what the situation is, Dave Roberts is going to try to get them in just because they need work. And then everyone's going to regret that the next day when there are big spots and those guys just threw a bunch of pitches the day before. That is, if I can guarantee anything about the next couple of games of the series, it will be that because that is sort of the thing that always happens. Um, and and, and, that, and to, to that point, I think that's, you know, you know, the, the, you know, obviously the Rays are considered like, you know, the most progressive clubs in terms of like analytics and like how they run their team. And I think that, you know, the fact that, and, and the Dodgers are also considered on that list, but the biggest difference you see is in the bullpen usage. And I think that like, that's a perfect example, right? Where it's like in game one, when Nick Anderson did not pitch in game one, it was like, okay, you could almost like take it to the bank that he was going to be the first man out of the bullpen in game two. Cause it was like, we're definitely going to use him in this game. We might as well use him as soon as we can in a high leverage situation. I, I agree with flip, that. Flip, 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 flip it with the Dodgers. Like let's even, even, even if you think they still trusted Kenley as much as they, um, uh, the Rays like Anderson, you would think that they would be like, you know, we have to figure out a way to get him into game two, no matter what. And like, he didn't pitch. And it's like, to me, it's almost like kind of a wasted opportunity. Like to me, like, in a, if you really, if he's really a most trusted guy, he probably should have come in or Joe Kelly came in. Right. And like the sixth inning where it was like, it's kind of a game now it's five, two, like maybe we should like really try and like hold it here and give our bats a chance to get back in the game. And instead they went to like their like eighth best reliever as opposed to their best reliever. It is funny though we we always give Dave Roberts a hard time for his bullpen choices. I think some of that's merited and some of it's not. But in game one, it was actually Kevin Cash who left in Tyler Glasnow for 112 pitches and kind of gave up some big hits at the end, right? Like that's not that is not Kevin Cash style to do that. I think 112 pitches was the most any Tampa Bay starter had gone all season long 
and it happened in game one. That to me was a, a big turning point. Did you ever see anything from him explaining why he did that? Why he kind of went against the, the usual raise ethos? I think they had a they had a lefty matchup coming up, and he was trying to wait to get his lefty in. And it just it was yeah it was it was definitely it was definitely a miss and very counter to everything we've seen from Cash Glasnow. Again, he's gonna have to come back in game five, and I love him when he's on, but he's he's erratic. He definitely kind of gives off sometimes gives off the. Um, I always like this is the comp I always use. He gives off the AJ Burnett vibes, where it's like when he's on, you watch him and you're like, "How does anyone ever hit this guy?" <laughs> and then like you watch him in game one, you're like, "Oh, I see." Like he actually like sometimes can't really command his stuff that well, and like you know runs up high pitch counts and walks a lot of dudes. So like it's like which you know game five, you know which which Glasnow are we going to see? And I think that was definitely that was definitely Cash's kind of biggest whiff of the postseason so far. Of like normally if. He never, if anything, he never, maybe he'll, he'll pull guys too quickly, but like he seldom ever leaves them in too long. And that was, that was a, that was a one situation. Although he kind of, he kind of did that again in game two where he actually kept um, Fairbanks in for a second inning and he gave up that homer to Corey Seager. And that was one where he was kind of bit a little bit by the three batter rule, right? Where Fairbanks had pitched a quick scoreless inning in the, in the, in the seventh and he brought him back out for the eighth. And in the old times, with Corey Seager leading off and the Rays have five lefties in their bullpen, you definitely would have seen a lefty one-out guy, a Lugie, come in, throw Seager, and then bring in Castillo or someone else. But he was like, you know what? I've got, you know, it's it's Seager followed by Will Smith, followed by Muncy. Like, I'm going to try and just – Fairbanks only pitched like three, 10 pitches. I'm going to try and get into this inning. And it almost burned him because the Dodgers split up their lefties, so there's not really a great spot to bring in um, a lefty. Of course, how it turned out, they had already brought in um, – Edwin Rios earlier in the game to hit for Kike Hernandez. So there was a spot with two lefties back to back in Bellinger and um, Rios. And that was clearly what, 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 um, what cash was sort of like trying to get to so he could bring in a lefty. And sure enough, he, um, he uh, was able to get Aaron loop in there to get, to get Cody Bellinger um, to strike out to end the inning and then get the first two outs of the ninth inning and win the game. You know what crazy fact I learned this week? Do you know who the Rays highest paid reliever is? Oh man. Um, do I know who the Rays highest paid reliever is? I'm trying to think if I can stall long enough to go look at the Rays playoff <laughs> roster. Yeah, uh, is is it Diego Castillo cuz he's been around for a while? I really don't know. It's Aaron Loop. Oh, right. <laughs> they signed him as a free agent for 1 year and 1.6 million dollars and he's the highest paid reliever. See, if there's anything way more indicative of like how the Rays have managed to build their roster, um it's that it's I think it's that fact when you consider they might have the best bullpen in <laughs> in uh in in baseball um so what what's um yeah so three more games next three days or actually sorry not next not next three days we're thursday games on friday saturday sunday um should be fun yeah let's finish with this have you enjoyed the first two games of the world series because i i was excited for this matchup it was maybe aside from dodgers yankees this was the matchup i wanted the most for a lot of different reasons and i think so far it's been it's been a lot of fun. I know game two wasn't as close as the score made it look uh, until the later innings, but so far this has kind of highlighted the best of both teams, especially, you know, Mookie Betts exploding on the world in game one. Totally. And game two was, I mean, game two was like, the Rays needed that game with like the, the Dodgers going in with the bullpen game. If the Dodgers had won that game, I think the series was over. But like the fact that the Rays won that game, it's like, okay, now we really got a series. All right. That is our show. This is the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We will be back in a couple days either to wrap up the series or see what's going on as we head into the later stages. Thanks again for listening.